The Bain Free Radio Hour. Hi there, I'm Griffin Barber, your host for today's edition of The Bain Free Radio. Today we're talking to Will McCarthy, author of Beggar's Sky. He has a hit, rich history, and not only as a novelist, but also as an engineer, entrepreneur, and journalist, and a recent entry to the bar, apparently. Uh, as an engineer, he served as flight controller for Lockheed Martin Space Launch Systems. As an entrepreneur and engineer, Will has been engineering manager for Omnitech Robotics and later founded Ravenbrick LLC. He holds technology patents in a number of countries, and that's where his legal thing is going uh, that direction as well for patents and that kind of thing. Will's been a columnist and contributor for TV and Wired Magazine, as well as writing many nonfiction articles on science and engineering topics. In between and during all this, Mr. McCarthy managed to write a short, a lot of short fiction for a who's who of SF venues, receiving nominations for his work from many of the best-known awards organizations. Beggar's Sky, the hard SF novel we're here to talk about today, is his eighth novel and the sequel to The Amazing Poor Man's Sky. Hello and welcome, Will. Good to be here. Uh it's actually my 13th novel. Well, there we go. See, I'm out of date already. My my eighth for Bane. Ah, there we go. Eighth novel for Bane. All right. So hardest questions first, as I like to do. Uh, what's the single coolest aspect of Beggar Sky for you? Well, that's a lot like asking who your favorite child is. Uh, I think, you know, hopefully the, the whole book is cool and, and every aspect of it will... Uh, resonate with the audience but the central thing uh the, that the that the book is is kind of wrapped around is this contact with a a uh, alien species called the beings and yeah i think i think that's pretty cool i don't think anyone's ever done it quite the way that i've i've done it here yeah so you did you stumble on that aspect i mean i know that for having read the earlier books that it's kind of a uh, it was inherent in there. You were talking about it in the last book as uh, briefly as a kind of a top secret thing that was going on that they were trying to make contact. Um, or, or did the characters kind of dictate it to you that, that this was where you're going to go for this novel? It was actually baked in right at the beginning of the of the series. Um, there's a drug called DMT, uh, which uh, when people take that drug, most of them report the same thing, which is that they're in communion, they're in communication with some sort of alien entities that are not from our place, but from some different place. And those entities are very enthusiastic and joyful and uh, uh, interested in communicating. Um, uh, and I've always thought it's very strange that, that most of the people who take the drug have the same or a very similar hallucination. And so, one of my thoughts coming into the series was, well, what if that's real? Um, what if uh, that's legit contact with a, a legit alien species? And for some reason, DMT is the way to do it. Um, so that was one of the jumping off points for the series. There's a lot more going on in the series than yeah. just that. Right. Um, but that's been cooking all along. Um, and now is the, the chance when I finally get to spring it on the audience. So as you said, Beggar Sky is, has at its heart a mission of first contact with the unknown aliens presenting in different formats, depending on the observer's preconceptions, training, and their worldview. Um, 
we get firsthand accounts from uh, varied peoples as much as monks, linguists, several types of engineers, doctors, musicologists, MFA authors, and others. Um, what kind of research did you do and how long did it take you to feel kind of comfortable writing these diverse uh, points of view? Uh, well, I, I had to talk to a lot of uh, different people and I had to read a lot. Um, uh, I'm fortunate to, to know a monk and a musicologist and a mathematician. So, uh, you know, fortunately, I didn't have to go very far afield for most of it. But yeah, it, it, it was a lot of work to kind of pull those those diverse viewpoints together. But that was that was what I wanted was uh, to have the aliens be a sort of Rorschach test that, right. um, you know, it depending on your if you're a mathematician, then the aliens speak to you in, in mathematical terms. Uh, and what's that like? Uh, so, yeah, I had to I had to really dig in and it was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of work. I, I enjoyed the one particular one who, who mentioned spiders a lot. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, knowing the uh, having made a few arrests of, of, of people on hallucinogens in my time, uh, their experience is highly variable uh, when they're you know consuming drugs that aren't made in a lab or, or that kind of thing. So. They can tend to be, uh, some can have really great experiences and others not so much. <laughs> so I was gratified to see that there was at least one, if he was being honest, that had a really bad trip. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Had to put that in there. Uh, so which character in Beggar's Sky surprised you? Oh, honestly, they all did. Um, at this point, uh, you know, the series has gone on long enough that the characters are pretty well developed. Um, and they all have minds of their own and they all kind of pull off on their on their own trajectories so the outline that i started with doesn't bear a, a lot of resemblance to the the book that i ended up with so uh which one would you have said that so which character would you want to avoid like the plague and why uh well gregory orlov is is the the favorite answer to that question he's a uh you know, a Russian oligarch in the sort of classic 20th, early 21st century mold, not above having people killed. So he's a he's an unpleasant guy uh, who plays very hardball business. But at the end of the day, he's just a thug. Um, his daughter, Sally Orlov, is uh, a, a real genuine psychopath. Uh, and so if, if there was one that I would want to not meet, it would be her. So which, uh, which character on the flip side of the coin would you want as an ally? Ooh, um, probably Frederick Ortega, Frederick Ortega um, from, uh, from Venus. He's a, he's a kid with a lot of energy and his own, his own vision of the future. And so he sort of represents the, the best of the, of the upcoming generation. Yeah, I liked I liked him as a, as a kind of a, a very distinct aside of that younger generation from Sally. <laughs> you go to him and you're like, oh, okay, this is cool. It's not lost. All is right. Lost. No, and and the two of them. My, my intention was that the two of them are are sort of uh, polar opposites. They're the right. same age, roughly. Representative um, of their generation. Yeah. Right. Right. They're representative of the best and worst that that their generation has to offer. It was very well done. I, I, I really did enjoy, especially the Venusian stuff. Uh, it was uh, 
in a book or in a series that's so full of big SF ideas. It was really cool to see this kid that who he didn't really choose, but he chose because he was too young to really make the choice for himself. Uh, even though he was consulted, he he kind of went, yeah, of course, not knowing what that really meant. Uh, and then he's not like any kind of scientist or he doesn't feel like he is a, a scientist or an engineer. And he's trying to find his place, which is really, really neat to see in a classic SF mode where here's this person trying to find their place in the world uh, amongst all these very accomplished, hyper accomplished people who are struggling despite their accomplishments. So it was really a, a cool character to see. And, well, thanks. and in juxtaposition to Sally, who's had everything handed to her and wants more, wants everything. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, the, the people on Venus, uh, I had a lot of fun with that one, too. Uh, by our standards, they're phenomenally poor. They, The only materials that they have in abundance are things they can get from the atmosphere of Venus. Right. So they can build this sort of graphene gel that that they've built a town on top of this sort of floating island um, that, uh, you know, and they can build things out of diamonds and, you know, any any carbon or or uh, or hydrogen, uh, you know, they, they have those things in abundance. But most of the elements that we take for granted, they have in very, very short supplies. So they have this kind of claw that goes down 50 kilometers through the atmosphere to scoop up sort of a pathetic amount of, of, of dirt and rocks. And then they uh, they refine this and, you know, over over a long period of time, they hope to have enough material that they can build a spaceship and sort of have two way traffic on and off Venus. Uh, at the time they went there, it was a it was a one way journey. Um, now, Frederic was just a kid when he went to Venus. So uh, it's sort of assumed his father is the the uh, foreman for this this claw operation and it's assumed that he's going to uh, go into the family business but he's got no interest in doing that uh, he he is a, a social media junkie which is a very hard thing for him to do with no from bandage. venus yeah with no <laughs> <laughs> so uh kind of as an aside and a little bit off off angle on this which of the four horsemen have you worked for Oh like yeah, mentality. yeah. No, the uh, these are these are fictional characters, and any uh, any resemblance to actual people is purely coincidental. <laughs> uh, no one resembles anyone. Of course. Okay. So, uh, are there any of them that you wouldn't mind working for of the four horsemen? Of the four horsemen, I would work for Sir Lawrence Edgar Killian, um, the the CEO and founder of of Harvest Moon. Um, he's the the sort of kindliest uh of these these trillionaire oligarchs uh you know you you, you there's only there's a limit to how kind you can be and still amass that kind of wealth but he's the one who has has his heart most in the right place i think so most authors find it harder to write near future stories than far future ones uh was this the case for you or oh yeah very much so uh you know, I was workshopping some of the early chapters, um, and there's a there's an AI uh, on board the the starship that people in my writers' workshop were saying that seems a little advanced. That seems a little too creepily 
intelligence, you know, for, for being just a few decades in the future. And then bam, chat GPT happens and mid journey happens. Uh, and so all of a sudden this thing that seems too advanced to be plausible was in fact too primitive to be plausible. Right. And that kind of thing happens all the time. Um, so yeah, the near future is, is, uh, is a risky business. Um, but it's really, really where my heart kind of pulled me because this idea that that space is going to be in the hands of private industry, um, whether you love the idea or hate it, uh, it's, it's in the air, it's going to happen. Um, so writing about anything else in science fiction strikes me as uh, uh, less, less interesting. So we get to hang out with a number of characters from earlier books in this one, including my favorite, Remy. Uh, will he return to center stage in some future uh, book, I hope? Uh, yeah, I don't want to say too much. Uh, I, I haven't gotten too far into the into the planning for for uh, what happens next in the uh, in the series. But Remy is definitely involved. Yes. He's a he's a he's a cop. He's the only cop in space. Uh, and so as the only cop, he's going to have his work cut out for him. Yeah, that was one of the things about the retirement home that I was thinking about is, boy, talk about HOA dues. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't imagine what it costs to replace the dome or just even clear the, clear the dust out, right? Right, right. And, you know, to your point, uh, Ramey is, a, uh, he's got a sort of a colorful background. Uh, you know, he's he's been in the Navy, he's been a cop, he's uh, been an astronaut. So he's done all these kind of amazing things. And to find himself as the sort of chief of security for a retirement home, uh, it's not really where he pictured it uh, ending up and it's not where he's going to stay long term. Right. Very cool. All right. So uh, in Beggar's Sky, we get to see what living in the Venetian atmosphere is like for the first settlers there and how, despite the wealth and power, the organizer possessed when he set about uh, colonizing Venus, uh, how quickly distance and bandwidth curtailed the founders' uh, business activities. I had the distinct impression that this was kind of a corollary or related to the work from home debate raging since 2020. Uh, is that so? That's that's an interesting. Uh, I hadn't thought of it that way, but but uh, yeah, when you're when you're uh, only able to interact with things from arm's length when you can't actually talk to people face to face when you can't you know uh, uh, physically visit uh, assets even if you own property if you can't visit it then that ownership is is kind of hypothetical so yeah what happens to Tahias is that even though he's a wealthy man with a lot of business interests on earth they sort of get taken from him uh, in a way that he doesn't fully understand and can't really do anything about. It's not just a limitation of bandwidth. There's also a speed of light yeah. lag and, yeah. and things like that. Uh, you know, the the Earth and Venus aren't always very close to each other. And uh, sometimes they're on the opposite side of the sun entirely. So uh, um, bandwidth and, and lag are, are significant problems. And costly problems, I would imagine, too, depending on you know, who your carrier is. Sure, sure. And so it ends up being more like communicating by mail than, than uh, you know. Yeah, and, and not only mail, but almost like, a, you know, 
early 20th century mail because it's not going to guarantee to be getting there within a day uh you know if, unless you have a, a communication satellite that can you can bounce things off of to get around the sun for instance or right, right. so it's, it's it's fascinating stuff again there's so many big ideas in the in these books uh and i just absolutely and i dug every single aspect that you know you go into even when i ne didn't necessarily have the understanding of the science or the underlying concepts it was still very entertaining uh, the the whole um the esl1 the shade uh and uh, what's going on with that with these uh, uh opponents that nobody's really sure who they are or what they're what they're about uh, are really kind of fascinating and entertaining. So I'm hoping that that will get dug out in the next book, which I'm hoping you'll tell us a little bit about if you can, uh, and that might be coming soon, I hope. Uh, actually, at the moment, I'm working on something else. Uh, David F. Shararad and I are, are collaborating on what is hopefully a comedy, uh, although, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, easy to say, and actually being funny is maybe uh, a little bit harder than just saying so. It can be a challenge, yes. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, there are um, the the opponents that you that you speak of. Uh, they're another group, a kind of a shadowy group on Earth, um, sort of the the world's uh, uh, nastiest NGO uh, would be one way to to think of them, um, uh, and. They have assets in space, and no one knows quite how they've managed it, or or what they're doing, or why. Um, but they're definitely uh, a a growing problem, and uh, you know they're a problem at ESL one. They're a problem for for Grigory Orlov's operation, um, and they're going to be uh, a bigger problem in the future. Cool. So, in the forthcoming book to be announced. Correct. Well, okay. So an ultimate question, uh, what aside from its raw entertainment value do you hope readers will carry with them long after reading Beggar's Sky? Hmm. I think what I try to convey with, with everything in this series is just the fact that the future is a, is a real place. Uh, we're all headed there. Um, and you know, these events, uh, in, in this, in this series are, are not so far in the future that, uh, I think a lot of the people hearing this or seeing this uh, this podcast will be still alive and kicking and maybe participating in in some of these events. Uh, so just that that uh, that sense of reality. A lot of science fiction is escapist, and there's nothing wrong with that. No. Um, but but what I'm going for here is is something a little more a little closer to home. Well, and I, the, you know, the uh, Gregory Orlov's, uh, you know, they're harvesting asteroids and, and uh, some cometary bodies, I think, too. Uh, you know, all of the different things that are going on, which will incredibly be incredibly uh, impactful on our economy, if nothing else. Uh, and the fact that in the earlier books, you tell you have labor disputes going on because astronauts are basically the ultimate technician you know, in space, right? That's what they're, uh, they're doing. So it's, it's uh, fascinating to me that how many different ways you're able to explore the near future and how it's going to be to be people in that near future. Um, so I, I think it's, uh, it's definitely something noteworthy about this series. Uh, 
uh, that need, needs to be conveyed to the uh, to your fans and to your future uh, readers as well. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. I mean, in in Rich Man's Sky, what I was exploring was what it's like when rich and powerful people control access to space. Um, in Poor Man's Sky, I was exploring what what happens when these powerful people find out that they don't control their own air supply, that they're they're mistreating the workers who who's have you know literally uh, have, have control their life support. Um, and you know, realizing kind of the limits of of their power, um, and the and the workers kind of realizing how much power they have. Um, and in Beggar Sky, I'm sort of exploring the idea that that um, everything in space is really fragile, and uh, interdependence is kind of a given. It doesn't matter how nasty an oligarch you are; you you, you can't go it alone. You you need. Uh, to exchange resources and information with uh, with other people, or you're not going to succeed. Yeah, and that the if resources for sure, because and even the how to transport things, uh, you know, figuring out that that's one of the things that they figure out from the ship that they're using. It's the I believe it's the Martian Four Horsemen's ship design that they use to get out to where they need to talk to the beings easily. Uh, it's originally a, a Martian design, or the that's yeah, it, the the ship the ship was uh, in, intended. It's it's based on uh, Dan Besman's uh, Concordia, which is a ship that shuttles back and forth, carrying people to Mars. What they've done is stick an antimatter uh, drive on the on the tail end of that uh, and use it to carry a hundred frozen people out to the very 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 edge of the solar system. Uh, solar system is a lot bigger than than people think. Uh, you know, we have the the outer planets, and then we have the, um, you know, the the Kuiper Belt objects. But then this this thing called the Oort Cloud uh, extends, you know, halfway to Alpha Centauri. It's it's just huge. Uh, so uh, getting to the edge of the solar system is by no means a, a trivial undertaking. Yeah, and then you know, repurposing that technology from one guy's you know trip to a planetary body to our trip all the way out, and then also as an economic vessel for uh, the same company in the and to try and sell it as a transport for other uh, four horsemen, other concerns that are uh, alive in the solar system. Um, is really interesting. And the way the government's like, well, we're kind of nervous about you having antimatter running around. Mm -hmm. So we'd really yeah. prefer you didn't. But, and then they're kind of trying to figure out how that works and how the treaties govern it. Again, a really exceptional read on, on how these things will likely happen. Because if nobody's saying, no, you can't, it'll happen. And then they'll the government will be trying to catch up. And, but they'll also have to look at the the value that's added by it, right? So uh, I'm I'm fascinated to see where this is going. I'm hoping you're going to get many more books and have a lot more uh, for me to read. So I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, so the last question today: uh, What conventions can your fans hope to catch up with you at? And what other work do you have in the pipeline aside from your comedy uh, work that you're working with David F. Shara? Uh Well, yeah, the the comedy is is taking up. Uh, quite a bit of my time at the moment, um, which which is good and right and proper. Um, I have a story coming out in Analog. It hasn't been scheduled yet, as far as I know, but uh, the check cleared, so uh, it's uh, 
you can, you can look look for me there. Um, and uh, I will be, uh, I missed Liberty Con last year because I came down with COVID the day before. Uh, and I'm glad I didn't come down with COVID the day I arrived. Uh, yeah. But uh, anyway, this year I will be there. Um, I'll also be at uh, Mile High Con. I'll be at Rubani Con um, in, uh, in Albuquerque. And uh, I most likely will be at uh, Armadillo Con in Austin as well. Great deal. Well, once again, thank you, Will, for uh, being here today on the Bain Free Radio Hour as we talk about Beggar's Sky, uh, forthcoming from Bain Books. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynn Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the Elven Court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. The elfin ceiling was quite amazing. Arched somewhere high above her, it had been dark when she awoke, but phased slowly to a pale rose color like the morning sky would as the sun crept to the horizon. After that, it blushed slowly to a pale white, then deepened into a delicate blue. She felt hollow and fragile, an eggshell broken and empty, the life released and flown away. Her mind seemed to come online as gradually as the ceiling, in a calm, detached way, she reasoned out that the ceiling looked odd because it was unknown, and then guessed it was the one at Winwolf's hunting lodge, and finally figured out what she was doing under it. Oh, yeah, we made love. So, that's sex. Oh, Uchi Mama, I definitely want to do that again. Windwolf said there would be other times. That thought made her squirm with delighted anticipation, she lolled in a nest of soft white linens, recalling all the sensations of being with him, the feel of his hard muscles, strong hands, and warm mouth. She tried not to think how pissed Nathan would be at what she'd done, and failed. She'd bullied him into a date, dropped him in public, and went off to make love to another male. And the worst thing about it? Everyone else seemed to see it coming but her— so she was going to get the young and inexperienced speech from everyone. Groping about, she found a pillow and screamed into it. Oh, why did Nathan have to be such a jealous butthead? If he hadn't started talking about marriage and kids, she wouldn't have gone off with Windwolf. Or would she? Certainly it had been Windwolf she had been having kinky dreams about, and the one that made her heart do silly things. But Nathan would be the one waiting for her back at the scrapyard. She groaned but forced herself to sit up. While Oil Can could run the business short term and now had Riki to help, she still had to get back to work. 
between saving Windwolf, her stay at the hospice, the NSA's kidnapping, and a day wasted getting ready for Nathan's aborted date, she'd lost four days out of the week already. Tinker crawled from the bed. Her clothes, cleaned, pressed, and folded, sat at the foot of the bed. Something was odd about her body, but she couldn't figure out what. Everything looked the same. Her underwear, at least, fit comfortably. For some reason, her dress seemed stiff and uncomfortable. No matter. She'd need to change before heading to the yard. Her house key had been strung on a silk cord. She slipped it over her head, and it lay ice cold on her chest. The stone floor was warm underfoot, so she carried her high heels to the door and slid it open. The hallway beyond opened directly to Wood's idealized, surely no random lot of trees could be so beautiful without careful, invisible work. There was an elf in the hall, too, of the heavily armed guard variety. His hair and eyes were black as engine grease, and he had a build that imparted a sense of sturdiness, which was rare in elves. Tinker Zedomi, he said in careful low elvish, and bowed deeply to her, which creeped her out. Domo is not here. He and Lifted Sparrow by Wind were summoned away. He left word that you were to be given anything you wanted. Who, Windwolf? And getting no reaction, Tinker struggled the full mouthful of Elvish that was Windwolf's real name. Windwolf? Yes, Windwolf. Obviously, the elf had never used Windwolf's English name. He pronounced it as if he didn't speak English, or didn't recognize the two words that made up Windwolf's name. Windwolf is not here. I want to go home. D-d-domi, the elf stammered out. Almra now is very far away. Huh? I want to go to Pittsburgh? She tried again, slower. Pitsabog. He looked to his right and left, seemingly seeking someone to translate. Surely her low elvish wasn't that bad. Pittsburgh? Now? Yes, now. He considered her for a silent minute, a foot taller and a foot wider than she, and then bowed again. As you wish, Domi. She'd missed quite a bit during the trip north while making out with Windwolf in the roll's back seat, they traveled half an hour just on elfin roads, cut through dense forest, until they reached the rim, coming out near what was left of Sawickley. They went directly to the scrapyard gate, and from there she gave directions to her loft. Stop here, Tinker said, as they pulled up to her building. She got out and then put out a hand to block the elf, who showed every sign of following her into her loft. She knew her nerves wouldn't take someone underfoot, um, thanks for the ride. Let Windwolf know I got home safe. I'm not sure if... I want to be left alone. The elf nodded and closed the door. That was another installment in Wind Spencer's Tinker. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.